Um, this morning, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. I want to go ahead and give you a, a little... Um, a uh, little word on the front end to let you know this is going to be a a three week foray into First Timothy three one to seven. This week and next week are going to be survey in nature. Uh, the week after that will be an exposition of actual one through seven. Uh, so let me read First Timothy three. I'm just going to read verse one. Uh, in a couple of weeks we will deal with all seven verses. But First uh, Timothy three verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. If you look on the blog, um, the title today is God's Good Order for Leadership in the Church, Part 1. Now on the blog are notes for for, um, two weeks. So we'll get through half today, half next week. And so uh, if you're looking at that, you have my manuscript in front of you. If you're using technology, if not, that's okay. You can listen and go um, read later. All week I've feared that this sermon is going to feel more like a classroom lecture than preaching. However, I've reminded myself this week, and hopefully this has been the work of the Spirit as opposed to a self-convincing job, is that preaching is not just passionate exposition, of a text with some points of application, but it's also teaching. I'm a teacher. I teach by trade. There are times in the Bible we need to do survey work. This week is one of those weeks. If a teacher leaves information on the table that will help their students succeed, that teacher fails. How much more so when the one I'm worshiping now in word will judge me more strictly due to what I say or even what I don't say. All that to say to you this morning, I'm not apologizing for the feel of this talk, this sermon, uh, because it's going to be exhaustive in nature. I don't want to fail to teach when it comes to the leadership of Christ's bride, the church. Uh, quoting Emmett Long here from about, uh, gosh, October of 2013. I pulled a quote from Emmett, and you can see the footnote there. He said, I grew up in, a ba- in Baptist churches with congregational democratic governance structures and never really thought about it until I got to seminary. And even there, it wasn't because I was taught, but because I started reading my Bible and asking critical questions I hadn't asked before. I think sometimes in our Baptist tribe, we have a blind spot of being Americans first and superimposing an American and democratic structure And ideas onto the church rather than first asking, what does the text say and how should we model that? And I say, amen. I have read more on church leadership in the past two years and the biblical role of pastor, elder, and overseer than I have ever dreamed that I would read. I've read at least five books and countless journals and blog posts from theologians I trust and agree with and even some I don't agree with in order just to check our thinking. Little disclaimer, the words of this sermon are ripped off to some degree, I'm certain. Because I'm simply summarizing the content of the Bible and the Bible passages that mention the roles of pastor, elder, and overseer. I've done an exhaustive scripture search on these words, pastor, elder, overseer. And there are multitudes of scriptural references in this talk. And you will see them if you pull down the notes. They're there for you. And to be truthful, most people's articles and most people's books revolve around these same texts. So therefore, what I have here, you can read outside of here and 
they're just different organizations and summaries of the same biblical material. And if they are, to be honest in their assessments, the same conclusions. So there's nothing new here. There's nothing unique here. But I've tried to footnote what I've directly borrowed as best I can. And I've given you a list of some of the books there. You can read them. When Three Rivers was but just in the conceptual stages, we knew, due to having been exposed to church government gone wrong for most if not all of our Christian experience and having read some on the subject, that we wanted to pursue a system of government that resembled what we see in the Scriptures. And we've done that as best as we could. As Father led part of our team away, we had the need to add help for the sake of sheer need. I've said this to a couple of you guys, I'll say it to you all here, I was about two weeks away from quitting And then for the sake of stewarding the work, because the work is more important than any one, two, three, or four people. The work is bigger than Paul. The work is bigger than Peter. The work is bigger than you. The work is bigger than me. And so for the sake of sheer need and stewarding the work of the gospel. I wish I could tell you there's a well thought out plan to raise up more men. But the truth is, and I'm quoting Brad Poston here from the car line this week as we were getting babies out of a car to go to class, is that the father had already been at work preparing men due to the discipleship that was taking place and the preaching of the word and the relationships that were formed so that when the time was right, so that when the time was right, men would rise to the invitation of 1 Timothy 3.1 if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Not if anyone is the golden child, or if anyone is a good talker, or if anyone is purty, and he's chiseled, and good looking, and people want to follow him. No, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So that when the time was right, men would rise to the invitation of 1 Timothy 3.1. Joseph can tell you about times when he worked for me at a non-profit at YFC here in town. And, And Josh and Joseph been in my class at Shorter. A goofy little class on spiritual formation where I think God did some neat things in preparing these men for this day and time here and the other men that have come around this work. So through the preaching of the Scriptures and relationships being formed, other men with Emmett and other men, all of us together, when the time was right, we would reap the fruit of that labor. As we prayed, in some cases fasted, And then asked men that we were led to and then observed Holy Spirit at work. We saw the Spirit of God cause all of these things to happen. So I'd like to walk you through the background of this wonderfully noble and yet difficult role of shepherding. Before we actually exegete and deal with verses 1 through 7. Paul begins 1 Timothy 3 by introducing some language that was not uncommon to his hearers, particularly the hearers of Ephesus. But it's quite uncommon for us apart from perhaps our denominational upbringing. Paul uses the title overseer. And for many of us, we have a negative connotation with that because you mostly hear that translated and spoken of as bishop. And in Titus 1, 5, and 7, Paul equates the titles of elder and overseer, helping the reader of the New Testament to see that these titles are synonymous. They are just different explanations of the same role. 
So I want to preface our exposition of 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 with a survey of these titles. And then we'll begin to, to discover in a couple of weeks what the character and skill traits are of those who fill those roles from a God-given desire. So we're going to use the title elder in this talk Particularly, you will mostly hear me say pastor, elder, overseer together because they're synonymous terms. And we're going to refer to elder because it is the most common word used. So let's start, point number one, and you'll even see it if you're looking along. Let's start with the title elder in the Old Testament. Alright? Let's start with the title elder in the Old Testament. And you're going to see as we walk along, if you're looking for the notes, I'll have little learning points. and say It actually says learning point. And it's bold. And it's got italicized and underlined text underneath it. And those are going to be big for us as we work our way through this survey of what the Bible says about the role of pastor, elder, overseer. From the very beginning, leadership of people has been accomplished through some sort of elder system in which the older, wiser, and experienced men led and trained other men to lead. According to Genesis Chapter 50, verse 7, there were elders of Egypt. And according to Numbers 22, 7, there were elders of Moab and Midian. So there's nothing unique or unusual about having elders in position of authority. The New Testament church was made mostly of Jews. We all know that, right? We understand that. King Jesus himself was an ethnic Jew. The disciples, the apostles were themselves Jews. Therefore, it's understandable that the church, as it grew out of those roots, would pattern its structure, would pattern its life and structure of God's people on the Old Testament. The elders of Israel are referred to in the Old Testament from the beginning of the nation of Egypt. Check out Exodus twelve twenty one, and you can see that. Down to the rebuilding period of the temple after the Babylonian exile, Ezra chapter 6, verse 7. In Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 26, they are grouped together with the prophets and the priests, and each group has its own special function. As a matter of fact, here's what Ezekiel 7.26 says. That's hard to say. Ezekiel 7.26 says. Try saying that five times. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. In Leviticus 4.15, the elders served the ministry of worship. You want a great study? Go look up Levites and Levitical ministry and follow it all the way through the Old Testament. Look at the roles of the Levites in leading worship. It's beautiful. Awesome study. So in Leviticus 4.15, the elders served the ministry of worship. In Numbers 11.16, they are described as officers of the people. While it's clear that the role changed over time, we do know elders were the older men of the community who, because of their wisdom and counsel and the honor that would be given to them, became the official leaders of the people of God. In Jesus' day, the elders of Israel were still leading. And probably most of us do not have a positive picture of elders from the New Testament text. The most frequent use of the word elder in the New Testament refers to the Jewish elders who opposed Jesus during his ministry. May that never be the pastor, elder, and overseers of Three Rivers Community Church. But within the Gospels and Acts, elders are most often viewed as forming an alliance with the chief priests. 
We read about Matthew 21, 23, Matthew 26, 3. and verse 47, Matthew 27, 1, we read about the chief priests and the elders of the people. More than likely, the term elder included groups like these. This familiar role in Jewish society was no doubt where the early church got the title elder. Whatever this role of elder was, the Christian function of elder carried over into the church. And we can only determine what that was by studying these New Testament texts. Which is why this thing is absolutely chocked full of Scripture references. And I want you to, if you're not watching it now, you're not following me, go look at it when you have technology available at home. The full manuscript is there for your benefit. It would be wrong to assume, however, that the Jewish concept of elder was taken over with no modifications because the church is not simply a carbon copy of Judaism or of Old Testament Israel. But nonetheless, the idea bled over into the church. So there's some background for you. Point number two. Let's take a look at elders in the church at Jerusalem. And this is particularly dealing with Luke's writings. Okay, You understand Luke wrote Acts. Got a little nugget tidbit for you here. It's a little New Testament snobbery, scholarship snobbery that I think will be beneficial for you. And so we'll run across that in just a moment. Elders in the church at Jerusalem. All right? The elders of the early church appear in three places in the book of Acts. Number one, Acts 11.30. Acts 11.30. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Acts 11.30. In some places in my notes here, I have for you the entire text of the scripture there in some places i don't why i don't really know <laughs> probably should put it all there but some of it's i'm backward acts eleven thirty. what we learn here is the disciples of antioch had decided to send an offering to help the famine ravaged church of jerusalem and here's part of verse 30 and they did so Sending it, what's it? The offering for the church to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. No mention is made of the deacons or the apostles here. The elders are apparently the men responsible for the general welfare of the church. We know nothing about how they became elders and we can only deduce that the reason they were elders is because of the order already set carrying over from Judaism into practice in the church at Jerusalem that is made mostly of Jews. Second reference in Luke's writing in Acts is Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Elders are mentioned five times here. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 22 and 23. This is in Acts 15. Some Jewish Christians had gone to Antioch and they were preaching that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Acts 15.2 tells us, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, thank God, you add anything to Jesus and you ruin Jesus. And praise God they were having no small dissension. And after Barnabas and Paul had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. When Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. That's 15.4. After they were welcomed by the apostles and elders, they went to work on the theological challenge of adding circumcision to salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. 
In the debate that follows, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James speak in favor of not requiring circumcision. And this theological discussion is limited to the apostles and the body of elders. Verse 28 adds that it also seemed good to the Holy Spirit. That circumcision shouldn't be required. When the letter was delivered in Acts 16.4, Luke comments that the decision about the circumcision had been reached by the apostles and the elders. This confirms 15.6 that says the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The third instance is Acts 21.18. In this situation in Acts, the elders appear, and this is Paul's final visit to Jerusalem. Paul goes to James, the Lord Jesus' brother, with all the elders present. He tells them all that the Lord had been doing in his ministry to the Gentiles. The elders then encourage Paul not to give offense to the Jewish Christians, so Paul accepts their advice and follows the instructions of the law. Here, the function of the elders is to receive the distinguished apostle and hear his report. And they take pains to see that there's a good report between Paul and the whole church. And just a little side note here, this is what we seek to do when we're able to bring our team in from the field, from our unreached people group, and what we hope to accomplish in PAN this year so that you can have connection to those people and we can help steer you toward hearing the grace of God on the field as the gospel goes forward among our people group. We know nothing about how the elders of Jerusalem were chosen unless we equate the 7 of Acts 6-3 with the elders. And I don't believe that's the case at all and shouldn't be done. What we can conclude, however, is they emerged naturally in the community because they were taken for granted in Jewish society. First learning point. These elders were apparently responsible for the welfare of the church. And with the apostles under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they made decisions about doctrine and the moral and ethical lives of the people of the church. It is a chief responsibility of God's under-shepherds, Christ's under-shepherds, to be responsible for the theological and moral welfare of God's people. In other words, they are those who guard. And we'll see next week when we get to the First Peter passage, when we talk about the role, and this is where the connection Peter makes between overseer and shepherd. Meaning overseer is looking down upon and ruling and lording over as the Gentiles do, but it is equated with the shepherding work of Jesus. And when Jesus talks about guarding the flock from wolves, those wolves are the moral intrusions and theological intrusions into the body of Christ that the under-shepherds of Christ are to go to war on. Meaning, we are not to allow there to be theological problems come into the body of Christ, because as we're going to see when we get into 1 Timothy chapter 4, that those will kill God's people. Theological diversion is sin. And it is not in error to focus on your theological health and training. Systematic theology isn't just for scholars. It is written to train the people of God to know God and know the difference between lies and truth. And a failure to give that to you is an abject failure of the elders of the church. 
We don't overlook systematic theology. It's a matter of fact bothering my soul that I'm not running the class every Sunday downstairs for those who want to come. I teach it every day. I have 11th graders who are well versed in Grudem. And you need to be well versed in Grudem. Why? Because it's the theological bumpers in which you survive as a Christian. And if we get outside of those, we are no longer Christian. That doesn't play well in our culture that doesn't want to define right and wrong. You believe whatever you want to believe and call it Christian. It is clear that circumcision added to Jesus is a lie. And therefore, you take anything and you add it to Jesus and you ruin Jesus. And it's our job to make sure that in God's people's lives, you are adding nothing. But by grace alone, through faith alone, you are holding to Christ. And when we see, or if we see, that the enemy has come in and is seeking to ravage you, we fail you by not bringing that to your attention. Does that make sense? So we have to be aware and guard, but also the moral and ethical lives of the people of God. It's not appropriate to watch God's people do things that are wrong. And when people have tried that, we have sought to insulate the rest of the body from that sin and deal with it. Just an FYI, you may be able to hide in some places, but by God's grace, you can't hide here. You know, that's one of the downsides of megachurch in North America. You can walk in the back door, hide, consume the product and leave before anybody ever engages you and can discern by the Holy Spirit whether or not there's sin that needs to be dealt with. These elders were responsible for the welfare of the people of God. And they were to manage these theological issues. Which is one of the reasons we preach from the Bible. Through books of the Bible. Because if you preach through the Bible, every issue will get dealt with. And you will learn how to study your Bible in the process. It's essential. It's essential. Point number three. What about elders in the churches of Paul? What about elders in the churches of Paul? Paul only used the title elder three times. 1 Timothy 5.17, 1 Timothy 5.19, and Titus 1.5. I see a typo in my notes. I've read this thing 23,000 times and just found a typo, and I can't tell you how angry that makes me. <sighs> Dyslexic people and letters. The lack of the use of the term elder should not be thought of as a lack of importance. Rather, it indicates a level of understanding Paul knew his audience and his audiences possessed. Even though Paul doesn't use the title regularly, other writers of the New Testament use this title in relation to the churches that Paul planted or was instrumental in. Do you follow that? Even though Paul doesn't use it, we should not confuse the lack of use with its lack of importance because other writers of the New Testament use that title in relation to the churches Paul was instrumental in. Does that make sense? You tracking? You need to move your head a little bit, all right? Are you tracking? We can go back and say it again if we need to. I need you to, need you to engage. It's important. This fact implies that Paul had established this order and these inspired writers of Scripture are recording what was done. 
And although Paul does not use the title much, he was obviously establishing the order of elder, overseer, pastor. Let's look at the elders in Acts in the churches of Paul. There are two references in Acts. Remember who wrote Acts? Luke. And Luke is writing about the churches of Paul in Acts. Let's take a look at those one at a time. The first one, Acts 14.21. Here, Paul starts back toward Antioch of Syria. And he's retracing the steps of the first missionary journey to the churches of South Galatia. Which is the book of Galatians is written to those churches of South Galatia. While visiting the churches Paul had recently founded, he was, according to Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. You know the fun things about going to our people group? Is you get to meet with those believers and you encourage them to stay in the faith. Yeah, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Stay faithful. Just stay faithful. When the call to prayer goes out, call on Jesus. Call on the Lord. That's what Paul's doing. He's going to these churches, reminding them to stay in the faith. And Luke tells us in Acts 14.23 about Paul and Barnabas' work. And here's what he says. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Let me read that again. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We don't know if Paul called the leaders elders. Luke is writing this, but he's writing it of the churches Paul has founded. These are Luke's words. Elder is Luke's word for a church leader appointed by Paul in the churches Paul planted. But whether Paul called them elders or not, we don't know. Luke saw them filling the same function as what he knew as elder. Therefore, Luke calls them elder. Learning point. In these churches, they appointed several elders. And I highlighted several elders on purpose. And we'll get to another learning point in a moment. We don't know how many. Just note that the title is plural. It wasn't just one. The model of a one pastor system is radically flawed. And the reason it's radically flawed is because God himself is not Unitarian. He is Trinity. It is the model off of which all creation is founded. Therefore, there must be multiples. The family unit is a trinity model. Husband, wife, children. Everything in creation images forth its creator. Leadership is never CEO. It isn't a Roman system of government. Top down, one guy at the top and all his underlings. Several elders. Another learning point. The elders' installation was by appointment, not election. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. This is a feature you'll find true to elders, overseers, and pastors throughout the entire New Testament. Our tribe of Baptists have screwed that one up royally. It's okay to say amen. Our tribe has messed that one up, something horrible. And there's a historical reason for that. 
In the Reformation, when our Anabaptist brethren were being drowned in the Danube River for insisting that they be baptized as believers, they didn't like this idea of oversight by a group of elders because it was the elders, overseers, pastors who were drowning them in the Danube River. Hands and feet tied. You want You want another baptism? Fine. We'll give you a third. Drowning. And so therefore, the Baptist model of congregational polity is one created out of fear rather than a biblical model. Elders were installed by appointment, not election. It's not the job of the congregation to appoint elders. Another learning point here from these passages is by appointing elders for the church and throughout prayer, I'm sorry, by appointing elders for the church and through prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord, Paul is committing the people to the Lord through the elders he appointed. This is significant for the elder and for the people. The Lord rules through His appointed elders and the people submit to the Lord through the Spirit who leads the leadership. This is the kind of stuff that makes independent Americans who want democracy over actual leadership very nervous. Often we're more American than we are Christian. The reality is that God appoints leaders and it is the role of the under-shepherds to listen to the Spirit and appoint them as He directs. Finally, regarding Acts 14.21, is a little missionary observation. These elders must have been relatively new Christians since the churches had just been founded. This shows that the principle in 1 Timothy 3.6 that says no new convert as a pastor, elder, overseer is not an absolute in the missionary context. Why? Is the church important? In our people group, when people believe, is the church important? This is missiology. You probably didn't come for a missiology lesson, but it's important. We care. Are they just to just flitter about? No. When believers are coming to faith in Christ, you have a church. How's that church led? By elders, exactly. How does that happen? Other elders must appoint them. How do they appoint them? Prayer, fasting, observing what the Spirit's doing, qualifications, appoint them. I can't wait for that day in our people group. That's where I get to work really good. Not just taking people over there and letting them work. I have something to do. I'm fired up about it. I finally am going to be useful to the task. So when the church is well established, it makes sense to have no new converts because there ought to be some mature believers to lead. But when the church is brand new among a people group and the organizing of the church is necessary, elders need to be appointed by qualified, spirit-filled men. What a great deal. How awesome is that? Apply that to imagine if in the States God started a church planting movement and new believers, there's no room for them. What in the world would we do with them? We wouldn't even know what to do if God started a movement here. But God has given us instructions. He's given us instructions. Nothing at all here is said about the function of the elders. Luke apparently assumed that in his day the office was so common that it needed no explanation. Acts 20 verse 17. The second passage in Acts, talking about the churches of Paul that Luke's writing about. 
Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary journey. He stops off at Miletus, just south of Ephesus, and he calls the elders of Ephesus to come and meet with him. In verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which men have made you overseers. Hmm? I caught it, didn't you? In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Paul does not call these men elders, but rather overseers. The Greek word is episkopos, or in this instance, episkopus, meaning literally overseer, and sometimes translated bishop. So that the elder, overseer, pastor is entrusted with the task of spiritual oversight. This task has immediate relevance because the next verse warns of the wolves that will come, not sparing the flock. How huge is that? The reality is that the spiritual oversight of the people of God is absolutely, positively essential. It is absolutely essential that we recognize we as leaders of you, God's people, it is necessary for us to have a spiritual oversight for your souls. Why? Because there are wolves who will come after you. And he's speaking to them, telling them they will come from within. Are we immune from that? No, we're not. No, we're not. Therefore, it is vital that we preach from the Bible and we pay careful attention. Do you think it matters what you believe biblically? Yes, it matters. Our culture does not value being distinctly Christian. The Scriptures value being distinctly Christian, don't they? Paul calls them wolves. And he says, they will not spare the flock. And therefore, Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church. And so therefore, it is the job of pastor, elder, overseer to make sure that the spiritual health of the church is there. Another learning point here. Or a learning point here is, it is clear that for Paul, the term overseer is synonymous with shepherd since the congregation is pictured as a flock, equating the word pastor with overseer and elder. Paul does this also in Ephesians 4.11 when he doesn't use the title elder, but he uses the term pastor-teacher for the oversight role. Here the responsibility of the elder, the overseer, and the pastor is to feed the church. Like Jesus told Peter in John 21, 17, feed my sheep. In context, the food is his word. And he says in chapter 20, verse 32, which is able to build you up. In 20, verse 27 of Acts, he says, they are to teach the whole counsel of God. In other words, preaching the scripture and leading from the scriptures how the elder pastor overseer leads. Another learning point. The elder, overseer, pastors are ministers of the word and responsible for feeding the people with preaching and administering the scriptures. Meaning we are to teach the Bible and administer from the Bible. In other words, the administration of the body isn't done with secular leadership principles. They are done with the Bible. I tell my elementary students this all the time and they know it and I've told it to you and you're picking up on it. It's in the manual. 
God hasn't left us without instruction. He teaches Jesus taught on that. Right? Jesus, let us sit at your right hand and at your left hand in your kingdom. I even brought mama with him. Jesus, will you let my boy sit at your right hand and your left? And when the other ten heard about it, they were fired up. You beat me to the punch, Jesus. You asked him before we did. I wanted to be over you. And Jesus said, the Gentiles lorded over them. They have CEOs. It must not be that way among you. He who will be great must be the least and the servant of all. And then he illustrated it by wiping the towel around his feet, around his waist and washing their feet. So the preaching from and administering from the scriptures is essential. Another learning point here. The Holy Spirit appoints the elder, pastor, overseer. And, hit, and this appointment becomes clear through prayer, fasting, worship, and adherence to the scriptures. You know one of the things I love about the Bible, because I'm so not a naturalist, is it just doesn't outline processes. It tells you the importance and leaves the process to the work of the Holy Spirit. That makes me happy. You want to know why? Because he's got sovereign rule over his people, and he can point out his processes the way he wants to. And you know what? He does it differently in every nation under the face of the planet. The church in China does not look like the church in America, and nor should it. And it's the job of the pastor, elder, overseer to listen to the Spirit of God and see what he's doing. If you want to see an illustration of this, it's Acts 13, 1 to 3. This is where Paul and Barnabas get their marching orders to go plant churches. And he says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The Holy Spirit appoints elders. As we praise, we fast, as we worship, the Lord puts desires in people's hearts and it's the job of the pastor, elder, overseer to be in that position to receive the fruit he is bringing. Another learning point, and we're about to wrap up for today. In this same text, Acts 20, 25, there were a large number of elders, pastors, and overseers. It's these kinds of numbers that allowed for the expansion of the church. As the Spirit appoints men, the purpose is not stockpiling them. Antioch didn't put them in a holding pen and wait till these guys die and then you can take their spot. Is that what it says? Okay, Barnabas and Paul, just stay over there. It's good. Spirit's called you. He set you apart, but just hang out. This dude's going to be dead soon and then you can take his place. Nope. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. As the Spirit appoints men, the purpose is not stockpiling, rather continuing the advance of the church of Jesus Christ and sending out new churches. This fills out the picture somewhat when we add to it the fact that Paul appointed elders in all the churches. Paul's appointment of elders, pastors, overseers, no doubt occurred after the manner of his own appointment by the prophets here and teachers in Acts 13, 1-3. Through prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit makes plain who should be appointed. 
And then the leaders lay hands on them and appoint and install them. And Paul's appointments were not capricious or merely a reflection of his own desires. And I will say this, that is the same of the men of this church. God has been at work giving desires to men to lead through 11 years of discipleship. And what a glorious reality that is for the future of Rome, Georgia and the nations. I want to skip to some points of worship for us. We'll come back and we'll pick up at that point next week. How do we respond today? How are we to respond to such a classroom lecture? Number one, obedience by seeking a biblical model rather than a pragmatic model derived from the corporate world or one derived from one's own experience of suffering at the hands of others. I'm putting a little parenthesis there, the Baptist model. Right? So we're to respond in obedience. I would argue it's not like we have an option. It's not like we can do whatever we want to do. We should seek this model and follow and obey, which we are doing. Number two, we observe what the Spirit has done and learn to receive His how regarding the biblical model. We can't manipulate His process of putting desires in right hearts. What we can do is do things His way and trust His ways and His timing. And His timing is always perfect. Men, do you know how our town will be transformed? Not by our wives leading the charge. We hit this last week. In chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. fruit of the gospel will take place through the church of Jesus Christ as men respond to a Holy Spirit given desire to shepherd the people of God in His way. Which leads me to point number three. As men, we will be prepared for a rising of spirit given desire to do this most noble and difficult task in the advance of the kingdom and planting churches as the Lord would lead. In the church at Antioch, they had an abundance of teachers. So the Spirit set Barnabas and Saul apart and sent them. The Lord has given us an abundance of teachers. And in time, whatever that time is, when it's right, and I don't know what that time is. Maybe it's when we run out of room. We're not quite out of room yet. We're getting close. Maybe it's when we break fire codes. I don't know. I don't have a plan or an agenda. I'm just trying to survive. We will be prepared for this work. This was the Lord's promise to us in December of 2001. Getting prepared to leave Fort Worth, Texas, the Lord spoke this passage very clearly. Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, and 38. And I'll die on this hill. Thus says the Lord God, This I will also let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flocks for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. What's the promise I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you people to sacrifice to the work. Not to stockpile. God has never promised me to build a large church. Never. Never. He's never said, hey, give me a megachurch. I'm going to give you people to sacrifice. 
know what that means? Obviously not to kill them and bleed them. Not that kind of sacrifice. Obviously not. <laughs> but people are like, I got to go. Man, he's talking trash. I got to leave. No. What was the Lord? You read Ezekiel 37. You know what happens after this passage? It's the vision of the valley of dry bones. The Lord's promising, I'm going to bring you back from exile. I'm going to bring you back from the place that I've sent. You've been properly disciplined. Now it's time to constitute my people. And I will fill the waste cities with my people. And those cities will know I am the Lord. His promise is that He will save. He will bring. And He will send them off. Not for us to get big. But to fill the waste corners of our town and our nation. And unreached people groups with representatives from the kingdom. So they will know He is the Lord. That's what He's going to do here. If you don't want to be part of that, then please... By all means, don't let the door hit your hiney on the way out. That is the call. It's not to get as big as we can and build our budget. It's to fill the way cities with the people of God. And the Lord promises He will do that. He has done that. He's continuing to do it. And Lord willing, if we stay faithful, He will keep doing it. What a great call. This is part of our stated DNA function in this church. We talk about it in membership class. You've done the membership class, you know it. If you haven't, obey and get in it. But we're only going to do it as the Spirit leads by raising up men. He's been doing that. He's going to continue to do that. And then finally, we'll worship the Lord for His glorious activity among us to raise up leaders and to fulfill His word to us. He's been faithful. He has never dropped the ball and He never will. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. How cool would it be if God took this little, little, tiny, minuscule, not on the radar church in Rome, Georgia, and he turned it into a, a machine of filling the cities of our country with men who planted churches. Is he capable of that? Yeah, he's capable. Is that what he's going to do? I hope. But men, you know what that means? When he puts that desire in your heart, you've got to answer. You've got to answer the bell. You've got to submit the qualifications. You've got to be willing to die. It will cost you your vision for your life. And you must adopt his vision for your life. Oh, what a glorious vision that is. He's been faithful. He will continue his work.